Well, you have been so patient, um, and I, I applaud you. Uh, now we're at our third hour, and you're still here. Still here. <clears throat> uh, there's so much, goodness, there's so many different attributes we could focus on. We've looked at God's incomprehensibility, his infinitude. We've looked at his immutability. Uh, tomorrow morning on Sunday, I'm going to talk about God's aseity, his self-sufficiency. And I, as I was thinking, okay, well, what, what should we do for the last, the third session here? I thought, well, as long as we're talking about God's immutability, why not just go for gold and talk about God's impassibility and uh, make sure our heads are really spinning uh, before we, we go home and watch college football. Uh, maybe it's the appropriate way to go home and watch college football. I, uh, I was telling one of, the, uh, one of you who came up to me, I, I love big cities. I tend to be a, more of a city slicker myself. We now live in Kansas City, um, just, just north of the city, and it's about as country as we've ever been. Uh, we've got all this property, and I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> and I'm learning, I'm learning. But I do love big cities. Uh, for, for a time, I lived in, or our family lived in London. And uh, if you've ever been to London... If you can get past just the, the rush and the madness of, of how crowded it is, uh, it can actually be very enjoyable. It's, it's a city that if, if you have any curiosity in culture and arts, and uh, you, you just get lost there. Um, for me, it's books. Uh, I can get lost in used bookstores. Um, for others, it, it, the food, the aromas of the food, Indian food, Chinese food, um, all kinds of different foods, uh, but but also one 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 part of the city that really it's not just London; it's any city. Our museums, I I just am drawn to them. Uh, the quietness and just being able to admire works of art that there's no way I could ever do, but but just the the, the beauty and the the meaning, the symbolism. I'm just drawn uh, to museums. And they're priceless artifacts. Uh, in London, you just hop on the tube and you can zip around and go to so many of them. But there's one museum, maybe the most famous museum in London, which is the National Gallery. Any of you been to the, the National Gallery before? Okay. Well, if you ever get a chance, uh, take at least half a day and, and spend there. Uh, here in, in this museum hang some of the most exquisite paintings by some of the most famous artists that have ever lived. Madonna and Child by Raphael. Uh, one that makes my kids squirm, uh, The Head of John the Baptist by Caravaggio. Uh, Rembrandt and so many others. My, my wife, she is fond of uh, different ones, not The Head of John the Baptist, but uh, <laughs> Sunflowers by Van Gogh. Um, there's one of her favorites, my favorites too, is when you walk in to the right, I think it is, there is this, it's as big as the floor to the ceiling, and it's called Whistle Jacket, and it's this horse up on two legs. It is dominating um, by George Stubbs. I could go on. All you art people are starting to get nervous. Um, <clears throat> These are the, the paintings I just mentioned. These, these are paintings that are hard to see be, because everybody wants to see them, right? So you've got to get your elbows out and um, be very non-British and, you know, just aggressively scoot your way to the front and uh, make sure you can see them. There are other paintings, though, that I actually enjoy more. Um, some of these paintings, they don't, it's not where the crowds are. And so you usually can spend a lot of time just sitting there looking at them. Uh, they're paintings that tell the legends of the Greek gods. And they're just vivid and full. You could, the, a painting can just tell you the whole story. 
uh, stories that are unpredictable. Sometimes they are uh, very scandalous. Uh, one Greek, uh, one expert in Greek religion, uh, he says this about, about the Greek gods, uh, which you see in these paintings. He says, these, these Greek gods, they did not eat human food and would not age or die, but the gods had human form. Uh, they were born, and they might even have uh, sexual contacts, he says. Well, many, many believe there used to be a day uh, long ago when the gods lived among humans. Uh, some gods even would romance women, creating children in their own likeness, little gods, uh, for a variety of reasons. As the stories go, that, that came to an end, and it no longer happens. But there's many... Is, is you stand there staring at these these pictures that are telling the stories of these Greek myths. Um, one of the striking features is their immoral is their uh, immoral nature, uh, and and you see it in the story. It, it sometimes is scandalous. Uh, this this uh, author says captures this. He says. Uh, one ancient myth conveys this, that there might, you might see the gods in sundry shapes committing heady riots, incest, and rapes. And he's right. Um, for instance, one very disturbing painting is called The Rape of Europa, a very famous painting. And if any of you have any background in um, English literature, uh, especially if it's ancient literature, you may know this already. Um, this Painting is is uh, depicting the god, the god of gods, really, which is Zeus. Uh, and he, in this painting, you recognize him because he's undergone a transformation. Be- he is a a bull, a very large bull. And why? Well, he has become a bull so that he can seduce uh, this princess hoist her on his back and ride away with her and and have her to himself. Well, in one interpretation of of the story and the painting, uh, Europa, she's she's staying there. She's got this confused look on her face. Uh, She's unsure exactly what's happening. It's all happening all of a sudden. But the bull has already put the plan into action. He's licking her feet. And you've got Cupid, uh, I think it's Cupid's over to the right in the corner, who's already decorating the bull's horns with flowers, um, symbolizing that he's going to have his way with her. What's impossible to miss is with so many of these these gods, and you see it with, with Zeus in this story, there's a certain perversity. But not just a perversity, there's a fluctuation in form. And so Zeus becomes this bull. In other stories, he might become something else. Changes his identity. Um, But it's not just physical form that changes. It's their emotional makeup as well. One moment, someone like Zeus might be parading his power, god of the sky, throwing thunderbolts at his enemies. The next moment, a, a god could be helpless, maybe even pathetic, um, defeated in agony, and uh, you start to pity them, but you wouldn't you wouldn't trust them either. One minute they're on your side, and the next they fly off the handle, uncontrolled rage and lose their temper, and they can be extremely whimsical. And there's no guarantee. There's really no indication that these gods have control over themselves or the human emotions that they have displayed. Instead, these gods actually look a lot like us. And at times, uh, they are even dependent on us, needing us to fulfill their happiness, satisfy their discontentment, or in some cases, uh, like this one, um, their own lust. Well, every time I visited and stared at so many of these different paintings uh, in the National Gallery, 
I couldn't help but think. In fact, it really helped me realize the contrast with the Christian God. The God of the Bible. And how completely different he is from these gods and goddesses. When we compare the Christian God to these Greek gods, uh, Michael Horton says it best. He says, "If, if he were determined in his very being by what we do, then, then we would have no confidence that he, like Zeus, might not as easily destroy us in a fit of rage as weep helplessly over our condition. In theology, there's a term that tries to capture this contrast. We're not used to hearing about it. In fact, many of our fathers used this term, and it was even put in confessions, but we don't use it anymore, unfortunately. The term is impassable. Now, I have to, I said this at another, at another church one time, and I had someone come up to me afterwards and said, I thought you were saying the whole time impassable, meaning like you can't pass by a, a truck on the road. Um, different spelling, um, different spelling, that's with a A-B-L-E. This is impassable, I-M-P-A-S-S-I-B-L-E. This word contrasts the impassable God of Christianity with the very passable gods that I just described in this case with Greek mythology, though it's not limited to them. These gods are passable because they are what? They are prone to suffer. They are prone to having passions that move them and emotions that change them. They are at the mercy of emotional change and fluctuation. But in contrast to these Greek gods, or we could even look at some of the the gods that the nations around Israel worshipped, our God has been described throughout church history for good biblical reasons as impassable, one who is without passions. Now, what that means is this. Our God is by nature incapable of suffering. And he is, in his divinity, he is incapable of suffering and he is insusceptible to emotional fluctuation, much like you see in these gods. Instead, we worship a God who is in complete control of who he is and what he does. Never is there any action by God that is out of line with his unchanging character. Instead of being divided by different emotional states or overcome by sudden unexpected mood swings, moods that reveal just how vulnerable or dependent he is on on what we do, instead what we see is that the God of the Bible is a God who never becomes anxious, lonely, or compulsive. He is never at odds with himself, divided over conflicting expressions of his perfections. No, he is the impassable God. You may remember that prayer by Augustine again in his confessions. And at the end of it, he hinted at this when he said, God is free of anxiety. If we're to understand what this concept means, and I will tell you, this is the most counterintuitive concept for us to understand. If we're to understand what it means, it it may be helpful for me just to describe quickly what passable is getting at and how that is different from an impassable God. Passable means that, let's just say God's passable. Well, that would mean he is capable of being acted upon from something outside of himself that would then bring about emotional changes within him. It would also mean that uh, he changes in his emotional state or, or response, or that he has feelings in, in the, the, very much in the contemporary modern way we use that word, human feelings, uh, in which he might even undergo uh, changes of comfort to discomfort or back again, 
or whether he might be acted upon from without to then uh, be moved in one direction or the other. That is what passable would mean. By contrast, what does it mean for God to be impassable? I love what one author says. He says, God is impassable in in the sense that he cannot experience emotional changes of state due to his relationship to or interaction with human beings in the created order. God is impassable in that he does not undergo successive fluctuating emotional states like we do. Uh, nor, Nor can the created order alter him in some way so as to cause him to suffer any modification or loss. That last word there, loss, is critical. It's absolutely critical. To say that God is impassable is to shield him from loss. God's very being, his very essence, as we learn, it's it's one that is without parts. We are made up of parts. Parts change and mutate and morph. But he's not a body like we are. He is not made up of parts. Parts that can be gained or lost. Parts that can be added or subtracted. There are no parts to God's life. If there were, he might fall apart on us. Instead, Scripture describes him as one who is complete. And if God is this God of simplicity, a God without parts, then he must be immutable. And if he's immutable, well, he must be impassable. In other words, everything we described in the last hour is very much uh, the, the, the close cousin to what we're saying now. A God whose nature isn't vulnerable to change, including emotional change. Now, this also means he's not vulnerable to sinful passions, which we know all too well, don't we? Uh, Fear, anxiety, dread, greed, lust, unjust anger. You, You fill in the blank, right? To say that God is not passable is to deny him of any of these imperfections that would debilitate him or cripple him in massive, significant ways. Now notice, impassibility is really just the natural, logical, uh, and I would argue very biblical corollary to immutability. Uh, It's like an arm. To say that God does not change is not to say, well, God doesn't change for the most part, except in this way. No, he does not change, period. And it's another way of of saying this stems out of his supremacy, his, his perfection, even his infinitude. Because any deliberation or crippling of God, well, that would inevitably mean that he is no longer that than which none greater can be conceived. Now, Here's the question that's always asked, and we'll get to, to this later on as well. Does that, does that then mean that God is not loving or compassionate? That's a, oftentimes a caricature that we have to answer. No, it means that such virtues, and listen to this carefully, this is really important. Such virtues are not true of God as a result of being acted on by someone or something else. We don't create those things in God. He is love. He is holy eternally, even apart from us before we existed. So nothing else, no one else caused such virtues to exist in God. Nor does God look to anything or anyone else for such virtues to somehow actualize. Remember this conversation? Actualize something in him that he previously was just a potential. No, because God is eternal and immutable, his virtues are affected and impacted by no one. His virtues, if they were, if they were changed in this way, then he would no longer be that phrase we use, pure act. This is very counterintuitive to us. Impassibility though it doesn't seem like it at first glance, 
Think about this. Impassibility actually protects other attributes like love because it guarantees that he, that his love, it will not change. It will not fluctuate. Impassibility actually ensures that he remains good, that he, that his love does not alter. It ensures that his love needs no activation, that it doesn't have any potential. He's not a needy God like we are, like, like we humans are, as if his perfections need something more than, than he is already. Never needing love to be actualized. Well, that's just another way of saying he's eternal. He's infinite. He's pure act. He's immutable. I like to put it this way. He is maximally alive. Maximally alive. And passability doesn't mean that God is inert or static as if he cannot love. No, it, it, this, this idea means a maximal God. Well, his impassibility, it certifies that he does not, he cannot be any more loving than he already is eternally. He is love in infinite measure. Now, this attribute of impassibility has, um, you'll have to forgive the pun here, it has suffered uh, in, in the last century, big time. It strikes against our natural instincts. It's counterintuitive. One of the most uh, famous uh, theologians of the 20th century was a man by the name of Jurgen Moltmann. Uh, Moltmann came out of the, the, the period of uh, Nazi Germany in which he observed the horrific things that happened during World War II. And he put his pen to, to paper to try to give people who were suffering hope. Uh, in fact, his theology became known as a theology of hope. And it's still very much embraced today. Uh, his theology of hope was very much accompanied by his answer to the problem of evil. As the Jews were sent to concentration camps to be tortured, starved, dehumanized, slaughtered, these Victims, as well as others who are looking on, asked a theological question, which always arises in times of hardship. Where is God? Many resonated with Moltmann's answer. God is there suffering with you. He too suffers in the concentration camp. He too suffers in the gas chamber. He too suffers at the gallows. Uh, Moltmann uh, look, quotes a, a, a story about a group of, of Jews who were hanged from the gallows, one boy in particular who, it's just, it's just horrific, who struggled to die. Um, and as, as others were standing there, sometimes even family members, they watched on and, and said, where, where is God? Where is God now? And one voice responded and said, he's right there. He's hanging there on the gallows. In response to this tragic account, Moltmann echoes this and says, God is, he's hanging there, dead, on the gallows with you, suffering. And he says, any other, any other answer would be, would be blasphemy. To speak, he says, to speak here of a God who could not suffer would make God a demon. And so God is and must be a suffering God, he says, if the world is to have any hope in, all, in the midst of all of its suffering. He has this, this very striking statement, God in Auschwitz and Auschwitz and the crucified God, that is the basis for real hope. And as you might imagine, um, and, and I'll get to this towards uh, the end of our talk, uh, Moltmann turns to the cross especially to say, if Jesus dies on the cross, then that's the proof we need that our God in his very essence is suffering in his very divinity, that he is a suffering God, one who has to be redeemed before he can redeem you. And it's not just the son who suffers, Moltmann says, it's the whole Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit as well. Many resonated 
Um, and, and I think we could understand why. Many resonate with Moltmann's suffering God, in large part because uh, this appears to be a God that we can relate to, a God Really, only a God, he says, who, who truly suffers can authentically understand the suffering we experience in this fallen world. And many in the culture today go this route and say, well, unless God suffers, experiencing human emotions like grief, even being overwhelmed by those emotions like grief, then he must not, if this isn't true, well, then he must not be able to sympathize with us in any meaningful sense, let alone love us and care for us. And if we are victims, well, God too must be a victim with us. If we are vulnerable to pain, so must he be vulnerable to pain. If we are overcome with anguish, he too must be overcome with sorrow. Isn't this empathy, after all, what it means to love? Isn't this what it means to be in a relationship? What are we to make of this? It's a very strong argument, isn't it? A very emotional argument, to be sure. What are we to make of this commitment by so many in the culture, Christian and non-Christian, to a suffering God? And is it true that God must suffer to relate to us in a helpful or meaningful or loving way? At first glance, it seems very compelling. But I think there's a faulty assumption, one with dangerous consequences for our Christian view of God. To begin with, this type of reasoning... Remember that term I introduced, monopolytheism? The fact that this, this view that God is a lot like the gods of the nations, a lot like us, just bigger and better, but there's just one God, so monopolytheism. You remember that? Well, a suffering God actually looks a lot more like that type of God. It dissolves the distinction we've made between the creator and the creature. We make God in our own image to resemble our own attributes, reflecting our own human characteristics and even our own limitations. And you sense that uh, even in, in some of what I've just said to you. But notice, we need to be careful, don't we? Because any attempt to humanize the creator of the universe reverses that creator-creature distinction. While there are ways that we, as those made in God's image, reflect who God is, we should not jump to the conclusion that God must be like us to know us, to relate to us, or even to help us. Uh, not, not that long ago, actually, I just noticed on the news there's another, another fire, but not that, that long ago, there was a massive fire in my, home, my hometown, uh, Sonoma County, just north of San Francisco. It was engulfed in flames. Um, it's, I, I think it's, it was a, a natural fire that started in the hills and then made its way into, into the city. What made the fire worse than others was that the wind just like carried it, carried it along, right? This is how fires spread so quickly and started jumping freeways and entering neighborhoods. And those driving on the freeway uh, would report this. Uh, houses, large businesses started going up in flames, crumbling in ashes. It was, it was terrible. Imagine if, if you're there. Imagine your house catches on fire. You make it out, you escape the front door. You probably feel sick, sick to your stomach, right? Uh, because you realize, well, you're the only one out the front door. And maybe your brother, your sister, or your child is still inside. And slowly, the neighborhood around you is, is gathering and watching. What kind of response would you look for from others in that moment? Suppose a woman shows up and sees what's happening and in the name of sympathy starts screaming uncontrollably, ripping out her hair. Suppose another man shows up and wanting to understand your suffering pours gasoline all over himself and lights himself on fire. What would be your reaction? Well, you might look around, perplexed, but even outraged, until someone with a fire suit shows up, calm, focused, 
the firemen surveying the burning house and is so acutely aware of the danger inside as well as the suffering and the turmoil that's happening within those walls that he refuses to be moved by, like these other people, emotional outbursts or becoming overcome by panic. Instead, runs into the house in order to rescue your brother, your sister, your child, while another looks on weeping uncontrollably. Now, I think if we're honest, in that moment, we do not want someone who changes, who changes emotionally or suffers emotional change. We desperately, desperately, right, need in that moment someone who is impassable. Only he or she is able to save others from that burning house. The firemen need not experience all the suffering by others around them to, to, to know what needs to be done, to know how desperate the situation is. That we could even go further and say that only someone who is not overcome by emotion in that moment is capable of acting heroically. Now, many who react against the attribute of impassibility will object that, well, such a belief eliminates compassion. God becomes uncaring, a monster of some kind. But ironically, we don't apply that same logic in our human experience. Did that fireman lack compassion? As it turns out, he was the most compassionate of all. While the compassion of others resulted in emotional meltdown, personal panic attacks, and irrational behavior, the compassion of the fireman led him and him alone to, to act in the most heroic way of all. He didn't need to suffer to be compassionate. Similarly, we do not really want a God who suffers. We think we do, but we don't really want a God who suffers in his divinity, despite what our first instincts might say. Such a God may be like us, but he cannot help us, let alone redeem us from this evil world. If God is to act in a compassionate way, rescuing lost sinners, we need him to remain impassable. He cannot be conquered by suffering. We need the type of God Augustine prayed to when he said, You, Lord God, lover of souls, show a compassion far purer and freer of mixed motives than ours, for no suffering injures you. Now, the danger, this is the danger, right, whenever you use an analogy, at some point it falls apart. The danger with this analogy, this metaphor, is that if we press it too far, it could sound as if impassibility is merely a choice for God, right? The fireman could be passable, but he chooses not to be for the sake of rescuing those in the house. When we describe God as impassable, though, we don't mean to say that it is optional, as if he chooses somehow to be impassable given the circumstances, but it's not really by nature. Like we learned with God's immutability, impassibility is not merely a choice God makes, but is an attribute, a perfection that's true of his essence or nature. It's not enough to say that in this or that situation God acts impassibly. No, he is impassable by nature. And when we say that much, we actually then safeguard all of his other attributes, including his love. Remember, when we use that phrase, pure act, it means that nothing in him must be activated, as if something in God needs to reach its potential. Think about that for a second. God is maximally alive. He is his perfections in infinite measure, and he is so eternally. And he could not be more alive than he already is. What does that then mean for impassibility? Impassibility does not mean that God is inert or static, as if he cannot love, for example. Instead, it means that his love is so maximally alive, so, so fully and completely inact, that he cannot become more loving than he already is eternally. And far from undermining love, impassibility safeguards love, 
guaranteeing that his love is and remains perfect so that only an impassable love can ensure that our God does not need to somehow become more loving than he already is. Now, for the sake of time, uh, I'm going to skip. Um, uh, uh, it's so hard to do this, but I'm going to skip um, uh, a bit of a story, storytelling from Numbers 22 and 23. Uh, maybe on your own time, go home and read Numbers 22 and 23, uh, as well as Ezekiel 24. Uh, it, this, if you remember this story, it's of Balaam and the donkey who suddenly has something to say to Balaam about um, his resistance to God. Uh, but you'll notice in, the, in these narratives how God, through the donkey, as, as ironic as that is, through the donkey, actually tells Balaam he is not a God who changes like a man. He is not a passable human creature. And therefore, as much as uh, Israel is under attack and under threat, God will have the victory in the end because he does not fluctuate much like, much like Balaam does. Okay, that aside, let me tackle maybe the biggest question that we probably have at this point, to, and, and I'll conclude on this note. What do we do if God is this impassable God, and this attribute is essential to even saying he's immutable? What do we do with the fact that, well, Jesus suffers on the cross. What do we do with that? If God is impassable and Jesus is the Son of God, how can God remain impassable if Jesus suffers and dies on the cross? Moltmann's answer, which I hinted at already, is pretty straightforward. Moltmann says Jesus, uh, he suffers on the cross, not just as a man, but in his very divinity. And he goes further to say that this suffering, which is true of Jesus' human nature, well, it is communicated or transferred across to his divine nature so that God as God suffers in Christ. And then from there, he then draws implications for the Father and the Holy Spirit to say, they too die on the cross. Well, you'll notice something peculiar in Moltmann's approach. Notice he thinks from the bottom up. He looks at divinity, in this case Christ, through the lens of humanity first and foremost. He says things like this, God's being can be seen and known directly only in the cross of Christ. And so he takes traditional thought on the person of Christ, and he chucks it out the window, very gladly, in fact. And he says instead, we must get rid of everything you've been taught about the person of Christ from, the, from church history. And instead, we must understand that at the cross, what we see is a human God in the crucified Son of Man. Now, I could keep you here till 10 o'clock tonight and we could explore all the intricacies of Christology, but I'll, I'll resist that temptation. How do we respond to this? To begin with, notice this. There's a, fail, a failure here to be precise theologians, right? That's what I want you to be. Whenever you encounter a theological conundrum, a mystery, a problem, something that you're really struggling with, aim for precision. Precision is your friend. Because when we talk about the person of Christ, remember, he is the God-man, right? Which means that he has not one but two natures, a human nature and a divine nature. And some of the greatest fathers of the church who wrote some of the, the most important creeds, like the Nicene Creed, or another creed called the Creed of Chalcedon, wrestled with this very issue. They actually thought about this long, long before the 20th century. Imagine that. What did they conclude? Well, they were like 
to go back to that image of that of the circus, that tightrope walker, they are very careful to balance, not to fall to the left or the right, heresies on both sides. And what they did is they said, well, we don't want to squish together or smash together. That's my uh, churchy way of, of their technical language. We don't want to smish, swish, squish, smish, squash, smash together uh, the two natures on the one hand. But on the other hand, we don't want to divorce them from each other on the other hand. And so they strove for biblical balance. They said, describing the two, they said, well, these two natures, the human nature and the divine nature, as mysterious as this is to our minds, they both are part of the person of Christ. And there can be no... The person of Christ then is without confusion of these two, without change of these two, without division or separation. Now, those four words, confusion, change, division, separation, those are crucial. While we certainly should be fearful of dividing the two natures of Christ from one another, severing apart the person of Christ, we don't want to do that. But at the same time, what we see here with Moltmann's suffering God is something very different, the opposite air. We've actually confused them. We've dissolved them into one another, and they no longer have any integrity. By attributing a human attribute that, of passability, by attributing that to Christ's divinity, his divine nature, what have we done? We've confused the two natures, subjecting both to change. And such change results in the humanization of the divine. Now, it's, it's a right instinct to stress the unity that is present in Jesus Christ, the incarnate God-man. But these creeds and confessions and these fathers, they are very careful to warn us to be very careful to preserve the distinction between the two without taking away the union of the two. And so what do we do when we come to this conundrum? Well, we resist the temptation to confuse the attributes of one nature with the attributes of the other nature. And instead we preserve both and say they, as mysterious as it is, they both concur in the one person of Christ. Simultaneously, as mysterious as that is, they're not parted or divided into two persons but there continues to be one and the same Son, the only begotten, the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means, this is a, a very technical uh, point, but write this down and you can uh, think on this later. This means then that there's no transferring of, say, human things like passability over to the, the divine nature. Instead, if there's any type of communication, it's at the level of the person of Jesus Christ. And isn't that how Scripture talks so often? As much as it might highlight something that's true of the divine nature or the human nature, Jesus weeping, Jesus walking on water, it always says either one is true of the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. This can be seen very practically in two questions. Who is it? Let me ask you this. Who is it that is suffering at the cross? Well, the answer is the person of the Son, who is none other than the divine Son of God. But what if we change the question and say, what is the manner in which he experiences the whole reality of human suffering? What is the manner? Well, then our answer is slightly different. The Son suffers as a man. The son suffers as a man. There's a tragic irony in the view that says God as God must suffer. For if Christ suffers in his divinity at the cross, then listen, he's no longer suffering as a man. But isn't this exactly what the passibilist is after, a Jesus who is like us? and therefore can relate to us. As it turns out, impassibility can truly offer our humanity a, a God who suffers in humanity 
on our behalf. The person of Christ suffers, but he does so in our place as a true man. Notice the irony in this. By rejecting impassibility, we've actually locked God out of suffering in the incarnation as a man on our behalf. We've excluded him from suffering for us according to our human nature. If the Son of God is going to act on our behalf as our suffering servant, it is crucial that we honor him as truly, true human. And if we segregate his suffering to his divinity, we empty suffering in the incarnation from its effectiveness entirely. He's no longer the suffering servant we need. We see the biblical authors use this, assume this in countless ways. Acts 20.28, pay careful attention to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 2.8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You see how they assume more or less this very mystery we are describing. I end on this last note, which may be the most applicable for your Christian life. If God were passable, would that change the gospel and its promises for you as a Christian? I think it would. If God undergoes emotional change and if his perfections, his essence, his actions fluctuate in response to the creature, then it is reasonable to wonder whether God's promises, Christ's saving work to fulfill those promises, and the application of those promises both now and in the future are certain. If he changes, if he fluctuates from one emotional state to the next, then his promises might change as well. A passable God would leave us in a state of anxiety, unsure whether he will remain constant in who he is and what he says. His wrath would not be just because his retribution is potentially uncontrollable. His love would not be steadfast, as the Psalms say, for a passable love guarantees no certainty of devotion. You see, impassibility is the basis on which God's steadfast love and his justice are built. If God is passable, we might also conclude he's pathetic. At first, it feels comforting, doesn't it, to hear someone say, you're suffering, God suffers with you. But any, any immediate comfort that we gain from that, it dissipates when we realize, well, wait a minute, such a God needs just as much help as I do. A suffering God is a God we start to feel sorry for. Not a God we seek help from or take refuge from. What we need is a God who does not suffer. One who is a rock. One who is a fortress. Only that kind of God is capable to help us and others when we do suffer. Only he is capable and free to relieve the suffering of others. The cross is a case in point. It's precisely because God does not suffer that he is able to send his son to suffer for us as a man. But this also affects the grace and the mercy we so cherish. Not only does impassibility guarantee that Christ can save us as sinners, but it guarantees that his love, his grace are free. If God is passable, think about this, if God is passable, then his love is contingent on the creature. We saw that with Moltmann. God's love depends on the creature for its fulfillment. A real give and take relationship, he says, requires passionate love, a love that is mutually dependent, that suffers, that's vulnerable, that changes. But such Passionate love is entirely conditioned on us. Grace is no longer free. Mercy is no longer a gift. Love is no longer gratuitous. 
God must look to those outside of himself for love. But the Bible teaches throughout that God's love is what? Unconditional, free, purely altruistic. Why? Because his love is impassable. It does not look to the creature for its effectiveness. It is rooted in God's immutable nature. Friends, in the end, only a God who does not suffer can accomplish redemption for a suffering humanity. Only one who is impassable can become incarnate as the suffering servant. And only one whose love depends on no one can offer a grace that is free of charge. As counterintuitive as it seems, the gospel very much depends on this type of God, an impassable God, whose love we entirely depend on, though he in no way depends on us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for giving us this time to wrestle with the deep things of God, to stretch our minds around your own character, your own identity, your very own essence and attributes and perfections. Lord, give us humility so that as we struggle to understand how you are a God who is not like us, but far greater than us, someone than whom none greater can be conceived, help us to have humility so that we avoid that idolatry that Israel experienced of making a God in our own image. We praise you as our infinite, eternal, immutable, impassable, self-sufficient God. We depend on you entirely, on your grace, on your mercy. In Christ's name, amen.